I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Andrew Falkowski, and as always, I am joined by my trusty co-host, Taylor Sparks, and our audio guru, Jared Duffy. How's everyone doing? We're still here. Coronavirus hasn't taken us out yet. Not yet. Thanksgiving around the corner. We have a fantastic episode. I guess it'll be passed by the time this airs already. But if coronavirus doesn't get me, I'm sure this semester will. You hanging in there? I don't know what it is with professors, but they, they make the first part of the semester really nice, <laughs> and then they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot to assign all this stuff, and then I, they just yeah, cram to, it. To any teachers listening, just because we're at home more doesn't mean we need more homework. You know what's amazing? I did all my videos for my class and put them up weeks ago. I've been done for like a week plus now. It's amazing. I'm getting next semester ready. It's so great. Yeah, well, a lot of my teachers are not that prepared. I have had all my homework due dates moved every week because they're not ready for whatever they're teaching. Oh, brutal. Yeah, I have to, like, scan through a 244 deep-fried, like, PDF of, like, metal properties, and I'm not excited. Well, to take your mind off that awfulness, we have a delightful episode for you. Uh, we're really excited about this. This episode, just to say up front, is sponsored by the American Ceramic Society, the Electronics Division. And as we thought, what would be an interesting episode to cover that's relevant to this division? We thought, why not tackle superconductors? After all, there was that big announcement last month, which we'll get to in a moment. So before we get to there, we got to go way back in time. We're going to go back to the 1800s, 1850, right? So way back in time, we have the birth of Kamerling Onis. This is Heike Kamerling Onis. He's born in the Netherlands, Groningen. His dad was a bricklayer. He goes to university at Groningen and Heidelberg. And at the end of his university experience, so from 1870 to 1879, he gets his PhD. And by 1882, a few years later, he kicks off his professional career as a professor at Leiden University. And I love this. When you read about him, he was fascinated, obsessed with this idea of getting to absolute zero. Right? This was only recently sort of, it was Lord Kelvin that was the first one to realize where uh, absolute zero should be on the you know degree scale. Mm-hmm. And so everyone was after it. They were all trying to get there. And he was a dedicated experimentalist. And he thought, you know, we're going to find ways to get to lower and lower temperatures. And he had this motto, which I love. In, in Dutch, it would be dormaten tot weten, which rhymes. But it, in, it would translate to knowledge through measurement. And so he was out there in the trenches actually making measurements in this uncharted territory. So tell us about this whole race to low temperatures, Andrew. Absolutely. Uh, before going into that, though, now, even though Onus had his doctorate, he had another title, which I think was much better, much cooler. He was known as the Gentleman of Absolute Zero. This is such a great name. Can I start? Can I be called that from now on? I think you need your own. <laughs> I think you need to do something with Absolute Zero first. I want to be the Gentleman of Materials Informatics. That does not have the same range. I feel really you, have to, you have to be there in the beginning. <laughs> you got to find something yeah, new. You better found a new field of study and you're good to go. <laughs> I'll be the gentleman of poop crystals, or at least I was going to be that. The, the gentleman of poop doped. Uh, they're not poop. What was that? What was the? What was the? Poop oh, doped? bird pooped yeah. doped conductors. Yeah. yeah, that could be you. Well, by next month, I hope to have found the inspiration. 
he, he obsessed with going to absolute zero, but he wasn't the only one. He had some rivals, a Scottish physicist uh, and chemist, James Dewar. About 1892, he had the idea of using vacuum-jacketed vessels for the storage of liquid gases. By the way, if you've been in the lab and you've used a doer like to fill up liquid nitrogen, it's named after this guy. This is the guy. And the reason we need something so heavily insulated is because these gases at room temperature want to go back to gases. They don't want to be in that liquid state, so you need extreme insulation if you're going to do that. And so he is the one who comes up with the idea of the doer flask. Um also known as the thermos or the vacuum flask. Which is really funny because nowadays these have made like a comeback. I'm holding Jared's here and, you know, the hydro flask is really old technology. This has been around for a long time, but it does its job incredibly well. It's all about marketing. And so he's the one who sort of comes up with this idea, but unfortunately in disclosing this invention, he was unable to go through with his patent, so he wasn't able to actually profit from the widespread adoption of his And he wasn't able to stop the thermos company, right? So they were able to make this and he... And what's interesting, if you read about this guy online, it it's even in his Wikipedia pages is that he was infamously an irascible person. Like he was irascible. just a grump. He yeah. was n- he was a very grumpy dude, and people had not super nice things to say about him. So I imagine that this fl- sort of fed into that. He did all this work. He made this amazing invention, and you get screwed over on the patenting, and people are profiting. They make you pretty angry. We still call them doers. We still misspell them. I would just thought it was like doer, but no, it's uh-huh. doer. Uh huh. Anyways. What this allows us to do is actually store these liquid gases for long enough to actually use them uh, effectively. In 1878, we get the invention and practical use of liquid oxygen, which is around, its boiling points around 90 Kelvin. Uh, then 1899, we're able to get down to liquid hydrogen, which its boiling point is around 20 Kelvin. And they were trying to work on helium gas, but that was in short supply. Um, and this actually allowed uh, Onus, Cameron Onus, to you know, sort of sidestep him and get around. And he was able to achieve liquid helium and he was nominated several times for a Nobel Prize, but he never won. Um, unfortunately, his work on low temperature physics stopped around World War One, and he ended up switching to the surface tension of soap buzz bubbles, which is not nearly as cool. Yeah, and it was kind of sad. Like, so his whole lab, the staff, like with the war effort, there was just no people. There was no personnel to do it. And so I, as I was reading this biography about him, it really sounded like the, the wind got taken out of his sails in a pretty major way and he never really recovered from it. But if we switch back to the person who was able to liquefy helium, that's Kamerling Onas. And when you liquefy helium, all of a sudden you can now get down to crazy low temperatures, right? So this happens in 1908. And now that you can get down to these low temperatures, he starts measuring properties of materials at these low temperatures. And that's because there was this big unanswered question at the time. We know, and this is still true today, like one of the basic concepts you learn in in a material science class is that a metal, its electrical conductivity goes down as you heat it up because the resistivity increases. And Mm -hmm. a simple way to explain this is the atoms are vibrating. And so if you imagine you heat it up, they're vibrating more. And so that's going to be more things that the electrons can scatter into. So conversely, if you take away vibrations by cooling it down, it's going to become more conductive. The resistivity decreases. Or at least that's what they thought. They didn't actually know because for a while we didn't have any way of getting close there. It wasn't well, until the liquefaction of helium yeah. that we're getting down to about one Kelvin. Well, they knew even at the higher temperatures, like 50 to 90 K, that, that it continued down. But there was two big schools of thought. Some people thought that it, as you reached absolute zero, if that was possible, that it was going to level out to a constant. It reached an asymptote of a constant value. And other people, like Lord Kelvin himself, actually advocated for a different model that said that it would rise, that the electrons themselves would freeze in place and that you would get infinite resistance. So the opposite of a superconductor. They had nobody considered the third option, which turned out to be true, that when you get low enough 
becomes infinitely conductive, which is just mind-boggling. Like, they, they never saw that coming. In any case, Kamerling Onus is after this. He's trying to figure out which one is it. Does it level out to a constant, or does it become infinite resistivity? And so he is measuring materials, but he thinks that impurities in his metals are going to spoil his results. He was working with gold and things that could be relatively pure. Wasn't good enough, and so he actually chose mercury, right? And that, uh, it's interesting, he had to put it in a little tube. It was a little U-shaped tube, and he would connect his wires to it, and he would measure the resistivity of the system without it, and now you know what the resistance is. And then he would connect it to that mercury tube, and the additional resistance you now know is attributed to the, the mercury metal. To his great shock, right, he's measuring this resistivity, and as they go down at 4.19 Kelvin, all of a sudden the resistivity just vanished. And so they didn't believe this at first. He has some, there's some really cool, uh, you can see his lab notebooks with his like notes on the side where he's like trying to make sense of this and describing the time of the day when they're doing it. It's really cool. And this is great because there's some apocryphal crazy stories about some sleepy young apprentice, which has now been disproven by these lab notebooks. But we do know that they didn't believe it at first. They thought it was a short circuit. They had to repeat it a few times until they believed it. And then sure enough, they published this first paper called The Resistance of Pure Mercury at helium temperatures, right, as part of the communications from his university. And then they go on to discover the same thing happens in a couple other metals, tin and lead. Uh, in the early days, he was calling this supraconductivity, supraconductivity, and he presented it at this uh, conference, I think it was three weeks later in 1912, and it was actually pretty mild reception. Like, people were not that jazzed about it. Like, th I don't think they yet understood, but he did. He saw the potential for this. If you have something that has no resistivity, think what that means for power conduction, right? If you're generating power here, we lose a lot of that power as we conduct it. This is still a problem that we face. We're still thinking about the benefit that superconducting wires could have. For example, if you're generating power out in the desert where you maybe have lots of sunlight or wind, but you need it in the city, that power loss in transmission is still an issue that we face. Absolutely. And it really is kind of on brand for experts in the field not to really appreciate this new and upcoming right? revelation. It seems like experts are very much tied into their their own research and their own assumptions about the field. And when something comes along that breaks that, they're not always the quickest to adapt. Well, and, and we see this all the time. Like, go back to XRD, right? Linus yeah. Pauling, someone discovers quasi-crystals, and he, instead of trying to accept it and understand it, he just calls that guy a quasi-scientist. Yeah. I think that um, it's, it's always safer bet uh, to just go along with what's accepted and to be critical of new ideas. But I think it's really cool to see these brilliant minds that can conceive of something totally different. In any case, he discovers this. Um, slowly, the excitement does build. Sooner Now these people are realizing as it becomes repeatable by other groups that this is pretty exciting. And he goes on to show some other really cool things. For example, he takes a lead wire and he brings it down to its superconducting temperature and then he induces a current in it, right? A super, a super current, right? The superconducting current in it. And then a year later, a year later, that current is still flowing. And this was baffling. This actually, they traveled it around. It, it went to different universities and they could see this. And it was, it, was, it was a total spectacle for people to see that this was happening. So no surprise, the next year, 1913, he wins the Nobel Prize, but not for superconductivity. He wins it just for low temperature physics and especially the liquefaction of helium. Because I think that there was still some uh, skepticism about the, the superconductivity ideas that he presented. The idea doesn't matter until you can commercialize it. Yeah. Um, you want to jump to the next one with the Meisner effect? It's the so it says the next great milestone. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, okay. The next really great milestone in understanding how matter behaves at these really low temperatures came in 1933. 
uh, two German researchers, Walther Meisner and Robert Osenfeld, very bad at pronouncing these names, discovered that the uh, superconducting material will repel a magnetic field. So what happens when you put a superconducting material into a into a magnetic field, right? Rather than the mag magnetic field influencing that material and the magnetic lines or vectors sort of penetrating the material and ha having influence on it, they actually wrap around the material and they, they, they distort that applied magnetic field. What causes this repulsion is that within the superconducting material, it actually ends up mirroring the applied magnetic field. So you're essentially inducing a mirror field in it and that's what causes the repulsion. So this phenomenon as, uh, is known as strong diamagnetism, and it's today referred as the Mesi, uh, as, Meisner. and today it's referred to as the Meisner effect. And the Meisner effect is so strong that a magnet can actually be levitated over superconductive materials. So you'll hear people talk about uh, maglev trains, right? Trains that are levitating off the ground, so your friction essentially goes to zero, outside of you know air-related frictions. But um, after this. Oh, so speaking of maglev trains, I spent a summer in Shanghai when I was in graduate school, and the airport's actually a ways away from the city, and connecting it is this maglev train. To my knowledge, it was the first one's ever built. It was 2004, and what's crazy is you get on this thing, and it's incredibly smooth, and it goes just bonkers fast because the train itself is magnetically levitated off the track, I think five inches or so, and it reaches a max speed of 270 miles an hour, which is insane. Uh, so very, very cool technology, and this relies on superconductors. Yeah, and that's not even the fastest. They have some that can go 370 miles an hour. <clears throat> it's it's crazy. I saw a video on Twitter of somebody being on one of these, and they had a coin on its edge, and it was just staying perfectly still. It's such a smooth ride. Very cool. So it's not surprising that, uh, you know, with demonstrations like the Meisner effect, that people began to be really excited about the potential for superconductors. We're still today excited about it. Back then, they realized that running things at liquid helium is a non-starter. It's way too rare of a gas. It's going to be way too expensive. We need to be able to raise this to something like oxygen or nitrogen or other things which are much less expensive. And so they started looking at other materials. In 1914, we see a niobium nitride, right? You see a vanadium silicate uh, in the 50s with its temperature of transition to superconductivity at 17 Kelvin, so we're getting higher. Um, in the 60s, there was a lot of work on niobium-titanium alloys by Westinghouse, and these were sort of the first commercially available uh, superconducting wires. Um, and this was a hot area in this time. It was looking at niobium-titanate. They would clad them in copper to make their materials. Um, but what's fascinating is that these years that have gone by, the you know 40 or 50 years that have passed by, no one yet understands how this works. Uh, Kamerling Onas himself was going around trying to explain it, but he dies in, I think, 1926, before there's ever a satisfactory explanation of it. And so it was this big mystery that no one understands for the longest time until 1957. Yeah, at this time we have Bardeen, Cooper, and Schreifer. You might recognize Bardeen from the guy who invented the transistor. Already big famous. Deal. Already famous. Did he win the Nobel Prize twice? I wonder if he did. Possibly. He must have won it twice. If he didn't, he got robbed. So he's the only person to be awarded the Nobel Prize in physics twice for the transistor and again for BCS. Big guy. How cool is that? Yeah, it's amazing how a lot of these really intelligent people end up clumping together and you just get some really fascinating results. And that's where we get the BCS theory for superconductivity. So it gets the Nobel Prize in 1972 and it's based on the idea that electrons form what they end up calling them Cooper pairs. And this 
uh, is essentially a strongly coordinated motion of electrons within the conductor. So let's break it down and explain how these Cooper pairs arise and what what they are. So when you're thinking about how atoms are behaving at these low temperatures, think about like an obstacle course where you have a bunch of punching bags that are swinging, right? When they're swinging, it's hard to run through them, right? You kind of have to duck and weave and you'll probably get hit a couple times, right? It'll slow your pace. I'm picturing the panda from Kung Fu Panda. Exactly, just like that. Uh, but electrons are a lot smaller than a panda relative okay. to the atom. That being said, they still get, you know, they still collide with the atoms or get influenced and scattered by them, right? That's where we get resistivity. Start cooling things down enough, and these punching bags are now standing perfectly still. You can just run straight through them. Okay. Okay? So when they are cooled to this amount, right, an electron moves through our lattice, and when it's near other atoms, it starts to attract them, right? The atoms are positive. Sure, they have their positive nucleus. Mm -hmm. They're attracted to it, which creates a distortion where you have a higher concentration of positive charge around that electron. Okay. Now, if we have another electron within the lattice, it sees a higher concentration of positive charge, and because opposite charges attract, it's now attracted to this one. Even and though so the electron's in the center of that distortion, it has a net positive interaction with another electron. It's more the distortion itself. It's not the two electrons that are okay. necessarily bonded. It's that the distortion and the concentration of positive charge from the other atoms coming closer to that one first electron draws the other one towards okay. it. I remember my quantum mechanics class ages ago, I remember that the electrons do in fact form a type of bond, but uh, that's the key part of the BCS theory, right? Is that these things sort of link up. Yes, and that's what we call the Cooper pair. Now, if you actually dive into the quantum mechanics, there's some contention about whether we want to call this an actual bond. But their whole, they, they, they claim that it's not a fully accurate description, but it captures the sense of it, is what they say. And so let's talk about these, these pairs, because the pairs have a unique, um, uh, have some unique properties that allow them to achieve this superconductivity. So first, let's make a distinction between fermions and bosons. Oh boy. Fermions, things like electrons, protons, quarks. Funny thing about quarks, actually, they got the name from uh, Ulysses by James Joyce. Fantastic book. But going back Fantastic. to them, uh, electrons, quarks, these are fermions, okay? Then you look at things like a photon and light, or Higgs, the Higgs particle, right? These are bosons. Now, the key distinction that we care about in this case is that fermions can uh, are bound to specific energy states. Okay. And the Pauli exclusion principle says that, right, for an electron, you can't have two occupying the same state. So once They can't have the same quantum numbers, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so once the lowest energy states are filled up, they have to go to higher ones. Right. Typically, right? right? So that's where you get the development of orbitals and shells. Photons can ignore that. Uh, bosons aren't bound by that. And so if possible, they will just all fall to the lowest energy state. Makes sense. I mean, photons like a laser, they all have the same wavelength. We do that on purpose. We make all these photons. We put them in a cavity so they all are in sync, same wavelength, in sync with one another. It's a coherent beam. And be that's because they're bosons. Yep. Okay. And so the, cr uh, I guess, really interesting thing about Cooper pairs is that when they form, now those two electrons in pair behave like a boson instead. And so there's no more there's no longer any energy restrictions from them falling to the lowest possible energy state. So they do. They go to the lowest possible energy state. And because scattering events necessitate a higher some sort of higher energy level to occur, because they're already so cool. at the, the bottom one. I, I there's no point in going through the math right here, but it is mathematically impossible for them to be scattered because they're at such a low energy state Hence and they're you not get going to go up. Basically infinite conductivity. Exactly. And these pairs are not, you know, once they're linked, they're not going to be there permanently. Uh, they kind of spontaneously fall in and out of these pairings. But this spontaneous falling in and out is 
on such a small time scale that they might as well just be. Yeah. And when you actually look at the physically measured resistivity, it is right there at zero. Basically it is extremely, extremely low. Mm -hmm. And it almost forms like a, this pairing almost forms like an energy gap, like a band gap, if you will, between the spectrum of allowed energy states, such that the minimum amount of energy is just so low that in order to go up there would be just astronomically impossible. And that's what prevents them from getting scattered. And that's so cool. So, all of a sudden, this obviously is going to be a Nobel, another Nobel Prize. This, these three both received the Nobel Prize. All three received the Nobel Prize. And then a few years later, we get the Josephson effect. So this is a, a graduate student, right? Brian Josephson was a graduate student when he discovered this. And he predicted that the electrical current would flow between two superconducting materials, even when there's a gap of something that's not conducting, right? So this was later confirmed. And in 1973, he wins the Nobel Prize. Well, he shared the prize in 1973 for physics. Um, and today we use this phenomenon in instruments like the squid, which we'll get to a little bit later. I love uh, the name of the squid. It sounds like something from like G.I. Joe. Oh, for sure, right? Um, okay, a couple years later, we're 1964 now. You've got Bill Little at Stanford University. and He's the first one to suggest the possibility that carbon-based materials could also be superconductors. This was another one that was not super well received. There is, uh, you know criticized uh, quite a bit and it wasn't until you know years later 16 years later in 1980 a group of danish researchers led by klaus beckard at the university of copenhagen along with some french team members uh, synthesized a compound an organic compound now it had to be extremely cold this is not a high temperature superconductor it's clear down at 1.2 kelvin so we've gone way down but it did superconduct it also required high pressure so the idea is that this really opened the door to what are called designer molecules things that could be made to behave in a really predictable way if you could understand how their bonding and structure comes together. Polymers always find a way to sneak their way into they every find application. A way. Okay, okay, okay. I see. Okay, so in 1986, we have Bednors and Mueller, and they're the first ones to discover high-temperature superconductors. Now, when we say high-temperature with superconductors, we're not talking about high-temperature as we might experience it. It's more like 30 Kelvin. Yeah, I mean, think of, at the time, they were looking at things that were like, you know, in the tens of Kelvins, basically. Mm -hmm. Um but what's really exciting about the material that they found is that it does not conduct electricity at room temperature. It's a ceramic. It's an oxide. Mm -hmm. Most oxides are not conductors, um, and this one's no different. At room temperature, it is not a conductor, and yet it became superconductor, and that's what was so shocking. Nobody thought—people uh, were looking at metals. They were looking at all these alloys of metals, right? Nobody was looking at oxides. In fact, it would be foolish to do so. Right? Yeah, and there's two major ramifications to this, right? First of all, when you're bringing up to higher temperature, it means it's cheaper to induce this effect, right? You don't need all these really expensive gases that go, so liquid gases that go this, this low. Uh, at the same time, once you're opening up the ceramics, it's like, okay, how many other potentially cheaper materials can we make these things out of oh, as yeah. well? And the design space is enormous because ceramics are complex. Complex yep. oxides, like there's a lot of tunable variables there. I love when they present this. Uh, there is the APS meeting. That's one of the big physics societies, right? It's the APS meeting. In their March meeting in 1987, when they presented this, it ended up going into an all-night conference, which people now call the Woodstock of physics. It was like, I, I had professors that were, you know, in this era, and they talk about it still like, I have the original paper. Like, I still look at it with disbelief, right? Um, so very cool. I, I was reading his Nobel Prize speech when he talked about, you know, they recap what they did, how it came to pass. And it was so fascinating to hear him talk about it. So it has to do with this idea of a yawn teller distortion. And it's a, vis it's a visual thing that's going to be hard to describe over podcasts, so I'm not going to bother too much. Instead, think of two pyramids, right? A normal pyramid, and if you took that pyramid and you made another one but turned it upside down and connected them, that's an octahedra, right? So you have a center atom connected to six atoms surrounding it. And if it's a normal octahedra, 
then we could think of what that would do to the d orbitals of that center atom. Normally, we think of the d orbitals as all being degenerate, but when you surround it with six, say, oxygens, you now you lift that degeneracy and you form three lower orbitals called the T2G band and two upper orbitals called the EG band. And then if you take that sort of octahedral structure and you stretch it vertically, so you stretch this thing out, you get even more degeneracy. So that is called a Jan-Teller distortion. We're going to put a video or a, a link of this in the uh, Instagram so you can take a look at it. But that's the key thing that he was after. He was intentionally looking. So he said in the BCS theory that the, the, the key reason why this Cooper pair formed was the distortion, right? The local lattice distortion. So that was their guiding principle for looking for another oxide-based uh, material. They wanted materials that had a local distortion. And that is a Jan-Teller distortion. This is well known. In fact, we call this small polaron or polaron conduction. It's when the electron going on a spot causes a distortion of the lattice because it, of degeneracy reasons of these orbitals. And so he knew that he wanted something that had nine electrons, right? And so if you start doing the math and looking at which transition metals should have nine electrons, then you are going to be looking for things like nickel three plus, copper two plus, iron four plus. And so he starts thinking, all right, what crystal systems might have those ions in that oxidation state? And he tries a few things first and it doesn't work. He tries lanthanum nickel oxide. It's metallic, but the transfer energy for the Jan-Teller electrons is larger than the distortion energy, so the distortion is not stabilized, so it's a non-starter. He tries to dope it with band engineering with aluminum, yttrium, lanthanum, no avail. And he actually puts here in his speech, he's like, I, we at this point wondered if we were going down a blind alley, if this was just a waste of our time. I'm glad he didn't listen to that inner monologue because he does decide to try something else. He says, all right, if we can't get um, copper 2+, plus, what if we start with copper 3+, plus and then we dope it with nickel 3+, plus? right? And that should give you nine D electrons, right? Um, so to do this, he was inspired by Bernard Ravo, who is a, I'm a big fan of this guy because in the thermoelectrics community, he's done some amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, Bednors and Mueller were inspired by the work that he had done on these barium, lanthanum, copper oxide sheets. It's really cool. This guy was from Ensecan, this, this basically national lab sort of place in France. And he had showed that you can tune the ratio of barium to lanthanum right? Chemically, you can just add different amounts of those. And that will, because those have a different charge, barium's two plus, lanthanum's three plus, that will force you to tune the ratio of your copper oxidation state oh, from wow. two plus to three plus. So that's how he gets the ratio that he needs to create the polar on. And bam, they make a material and we now have high temperature superconductors. Again, it was only at 30K, but this kicked off a flurry, like an explosion of research. The whole world all of a sudden said, holy cow, these materials that nobody paid so this kicked off this huge flurry, this major excitement. Um, actually, they found out that there was a little bit of lead that they had added at a calibration standard, and that lead was contributing to a phase that had a superconducting temperature all the way up to 58. So we doubled our TC from, you know, in a matter of, you know, short period of time. And then with all the other people jumping in, it, in, in the next year, in 1987, a team from Alabama-Huntsville, they found that when you swapped out the lanthanum for yttrium, now you get the yttrium barium copper oxide that you've probably made in the lab if you're a ceramicist, right? The one, two, three compound. And this thing goes superconducting at 92 Kelvin. Andrew, what is so exciting about 92 Kelvin? What makes this really exciting is now we can even get away from liquid oxygen. We can use things like liquid nitrogen to cool it down, which is incredibly cheaper, much easier to manage, right? This is starting to bring things into the realm of practicality and making it much easier to start integrating these into more everyday processes where we'd actually hope to see them, right? This is now starting to pique the interest of industry and thinking yeah. about how they can incorporate that into their processes, right? Because I mean, the science is caught up to the point where... Yeah, we already use effective. liquid nitrogen around us. This mm -hmm. is like a commodity. So it's pretty common, yeah. Pretty exciting. So for, you know, 
the years that followed this, lots of more research happens. There was lots of work in mercury oxides, then thallium oxides. The TC is steadily creeping up, but it's still far from room temperature, right? We're at like 138 Kelvin, okay? It jumps up to maybe close to 150 Kelvin with some of these mercury recuperates. Um, that said, in my lifetime, right, in the, in the late 2000s, simultaneous begin starts to work on these iron selenide compounds, right? What's cool is that you end up with lots of ways to form intercalations, right? We know that the copper oxide, that the layered structure that is really important. And these materials also lend themselves to forming intercalated structures, right? Um, they, you can also play with pressure. And so they went, starting out with 8 Kelvin, they were able to get it to rise quite a bit. In fact, they started taking and they started growing this epitaxially on strontium titanate substrates. And they were getting it pretty high. At first, they thought it was a different mechanism, but a recent paper, actually quite recent, showed that these are actually the same type 1 superconductors that we, that these are the same uh, garden variety iron-based superconductors that we understood before, but still an advancement. One of the big advancements in the last few years actually has been in organic superconductors. You want to talk about these, Andrew? So in 2015, we see these, uh, the emergence of hydrogen sulfide H3S compounds where they're able to achieve the superconductivity at 200 Kelvin under 90 gigapascals. So this comes from the Max Planck Institute for, oh geez, it's another Chemie. language. Yeah. <laughs> this comes from the Max Planck Institute for Chemi, uh, and the author of here is uh, Eremitz. And basically they validate these decadal predictions by various uh, theoretical physicists like Neil Ashcroft at the Cornell University in Ithaca, and that hydrogen-rich materials might be able to superconduct at temperatures that are much higher than we thought possible. The other thing about organic compounds is they're also very cheap to make. And so, once again, we're seeing further involvement in the, the ability to make these more practical. A lot of people probably, when someone was predicting that organic compounds were going to be the future I mean, of... I was skeptical. I remember when this paper came out. I was a professor here at the U, and I was not particularly sold on it. I was like, well, first off, I saw 90 gigapascals, and I was like, whatever. But a TC of 200K is a pretty big deal. And then a couple years later, we see lanthanum hydrogen, right? It's LAH10. And this one under 200 gigapascals reaches 260K. We're getting close to room temperature. And then last month it happened. It happened. And this shot across the internet. Everyone I knew was sending emails to one another because we got our first room temperature superconductor. So under this is from Dr. Pressure? Ranga Diaz at University of Rochester. And there's a huge caveat. First off, it is another organic system. It's carbon, hydrogen, sulfide. They put these between the tips of a diamond press and they ignited it with a laser. But... They found that this high temperature, one, the one at the 287 Kelvin, right, about 15 C, so room temperature, it only occurs under 267 gigapascals, which we're talking like, you know, basically it's 2.6 million times the pressure at sea level. This is like center of the earth sort of stuff. But yeah, everyone's giving all these organic compounds crap because of 90 gigapascals. But I mean, think of it. This changes it. This changes the whole game from room temperature superconductors to now the new holy grail is a room pressure superconductor. Mm -hmm. This is a big deal. Yes, these small incremental steps, and this one's this one's huge. It's like you. This is an important milestone in terms of the the further de development. And what's also really great about this is it really demonstrates this sort of trend in material scientists that makes it such an exciting field where you can be looking in an area and there could be something that you just haven't yeah. even tried that might be amazingly better, right? This is the dream of material informatics to help us scope out these yeah, areas. Look that places we where explored. you would have never thought. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we're going to come back and talk about some modern-day applications of these amazing materials.
This episode is sponsored by the American Ceramic Society, and specifically the Electronics Division. The Electronics Division is an awesome division in the American Ceramic Society. They actually hold a conference every year. It's the Electronics Materials and Applications Conference, EMA. The one coming up is in January 19th to the 22nd. Now, the abstract window is already closed by the time you've heard this, but you can still register to attend this. And what's cool is it's going to be fully virtual. So while we are still waiting for that vaccine, hopefully it's coming very soon, we can attend this conference. It's going to have live sessions containing pre-recorded talks. And one thing I noticed about this is that the organizing chairs, two of them are good friends of mine, Claire Xiong and Jenny Andrews. So I think it's going to be a great organization. If you haven't joined the American Ceramic Society, if you haven't looked into it, I really encourage it. I've said before, it's my home you know, professional society. I think they do amazing work, and we are grateful for them as sponsors of the show. The next sponsor we want to talk about is MapMatch. If you've listened to the show before, you've probably heard us talk about them, right? It's a company that's passionate about material science, and their goal is to help connect materials engineers with materials providers and suppliers, right? But boiling it down to that, right, I had to order some chemicals. So I go on Sigma Aldrich, and I click search, and then I have, like, to wait a minute or even two for results to load, right? It's this old, pretty dilapidated website, and then I get my results, and I have, like, five different options to choose from. How do I even compare them? There's no comparison options. I have to click it go get a coffee, come back, it's finally loaded. Uh, And then I have to go back and click another one because that wasn't the right one. MapMatch is a brand new platform. They have a great search algorithm that lets you search through their entire uh, library of options. And they even give you all these powerful tools for comparing the properties and the purities of all these materials that you might want to check out. So if you're needing to buy some materials and you're dreading having to go to some of these other more dilapidated and antiquated sites, consider going to MapMatch and seeing how they can use their tools to help you connect with the right supplier for the material you need. Finally, just really quickly, we also want to recognize that the Materialism Podcast is sponsored by Materials Today. Visit materialstoday.com or elsevier.com and you can find about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. We think that they're an awesome community. We're grateful that that they're here for us. All right, we're back from our commercial break, and we're going to tell you a little about the applications of superconducting materials to get you excited and inspire you to go into work on them. So, these are the most powerful electromagnets known. So, they have a lot of great applications in things like MRI, NMR machines, mass spectrometers, beam steering magnets, like in the SEM, um, right? Or in particle accelerators, something perhaps a little cooler, the, the big... Um, collider the big collider loop in switzerland right that uses superconductors in order to direct and accelerate a lot of these particles um but another really interesting application here uh taylor briefly mentioned or the idea of squids superconducting quantum interference devices now these were essentially these are these were based on josephson junctions and they are essentially forming this um, a superconducting loop between two materials. And what's great about them is they are so sensitive enough that they can detect uh, magnetic fields as low as 5 times 10 to the negative 18 Teslas. It's wild. In fact, when people look at... Um, it, they're so sensitive that when people make these what are like dilute semiconductors and these other really niche areas, they're looking for really tiny signals. If you use a metal spatula in preparing your sample, the tiny bit of metal that, that can give, that signal could massively swamp what you're trying to measure. And people actually reported a bunch of phenomena in magnetism, and it was actually due to impossibly small impurities. So these are incredible machines. And, you know, I love that not only does it have a cool name, Squid, 
But when you have like the condenser on it, it's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty awesome instrument. Yeah. And you know, they can use these to try to detect mines and other things that are giving off signals as well. So there's safety concerns there too. So some other really interesting applications. We talked a little bit about using superconductivity to revolutionize uh, transport of electricity and energy across our grid. Think about various think about various generation mechanisms, right? Electric motors, uh, electric generators, magnetic le- levitation trains, or even think about um, various alternative energy sources, right? Like wind turbines rely on some sort of electromagnet within them in order to generate electricity, and resistances can lead to power losses. At the same time, they also require us to use these rare earth magnets yep. that have environmental and ethical yeah. considerations, right? So if we can find these ceramics that are cheap, easy to produce, and get them to a temperature and pressure that's you know, reasonable, reasonable, <laughs> right? We can also help to improve some of these technologies that have been somewhat stagnant and help to shift towards better energy generation. So there's a lot of really exciting potential applications, and I hope that this new paper in 2020 spurs and inspires more people to get involved in here and consider how they could be impactful in their industry. And think about areas that haven't been explored yet, right? Like organic uh, superconductors are still a very relevant field and deserve some consideration. And I'll just point out that even though Bednors and Mueller discovered these high temperature, you know, cuprate oxides that uh, demonstrate superconductivity in the 80s, we still don't have a theory that explains it, right? Type 2 superconductors, we still don't have a good explanation for the mechanism there, and it's a Nobel Prize waiting to happen. So this is a really exciting area. No wonder that it's still relevant today. Uh, you can Your imagination can go wild with all the different potential applications that we'll see in, you know, in our mind for this. Anyways, that's a wrap for today's episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Um, we love getting these ready. And you know what? We would love to hear from you on the next episode that you want to hear. We get some great suggestions from our listeners. You can always send us an email. We check it. We try and do so pretty regularly. That's materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Or we are always on Instagram. If you go to at materialism.podcast, we would love to connect with you. Send us your idea. Tag us in a post. You know, we're happy to, to share your post back and get it to our audience if you've got something that you think others want to hear. Uh, big special thanks to uh, the music that makes this show possible. That's Colobite and Alphabot. You can find Colobite on colobite.bandcamp.com, and you can find uh, Alphabot on Spotify and elsewhere. Um, so drop us a note for future episodes, and please, please, please consider leaving us an iTunes review. We think it's going to help more people find the show, which would be pretty rad. Okay. See you next time. <laughs> Thanks so much, and we will see you next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials.